Welcome to The Spirit Explodes with Roger Kirby. This is study 12 in the Acts of the Apostles, drawn from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 41, opening the door to the Gentiles. As we noted in the last study, in the sometimes surprising purposes of God, the gospel was to go to all nations as promised to Abraham long ago. It is now clear that Antioch was to be the centre of this great movement. So we're going to read chapter 12, verse 25, to chapter 13, verse 3. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. In the church at Antioch, There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Maen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, They placed their hands on them and sent them off. The five named leaders in the church in Antioch were a Jew from a priestly family in Cyprus, a black African, probably a North African Arab, a boyhood friend of Herod, and a Hellenistic Jew. Question one. What does that tell us about the early church? How does your church compare with this? This really is rather amazing. We tend to think of our world as more civilized than theirs, but this shows a very mature attitude to the diversity of people present in Antioch. From this group of five men, God chose two to go on mission. It says much for the devotion of Barnabas and Paul that they were prepared to leave the security of the city for a life of mission in a very uncertain world. Fortunately, there are still people in many churches prepared to do the same. We read chapter 13, verses 4 to 12. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul, because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for that was what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop 
perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately the mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. They set off for Cyprus on their first evangelistic tour. This was the home island of Barnabas, so he was presumably keen to take the gospel there. This is the second, and not the last time, Luke reports conflict with sorcery and magic. He also reports a lot of conflict with the Jews, both before and after this occasion, but very little with pagans. Question 2. What reason can there possibly be for this? Where should we expect most conflict to come from, and where will it not come from? The apostles will have resisted Elymas because he was doing and teaching things that were wrong, evil, and anti-gospel. We need to be prepared to take the same principled stand against things which are anti-gospel. But more conflict came from the Jews, who were more nearly right, but still anti-gospel. Unfortunately, we too will find most opposition coming from the nearly correct, particularly other religious people who oppose the gospel. We are told that Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed, so he was probably the first member of the elite of the empire to come to faith. Now verses 13 to 15. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. The mission band continued to the south coast of modern Turkey, and then on to another Antioch, which was high up on the central Turkish plateau. It is thought possible they may have gone there on the insistence of Sergius Paulus. It is likely that he was one of the Pauli, a family of noble Romans whose home area was near Pisidian Antioch. Paul is invited to speak in the synagogue. What follows must be a praise of what he actually said, since it takes only about five minutes to read through. It may even be a later a compilation, giving the structure of the sermon that Paul usually preached in the synagogue, since Luke is not present here, but will be later on many other occasions. The ancient Greeks studied rhetoric, setting down rather rigid rules for the structure of an argument. It is not easy to grasp the full import of what he said, so we will look at it section by section using their structural principles. First, verse 16, called the exordium, 
an introduction setting up contact between the preacher and the audience. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The Greek is more accurately translated, brothers and sisters. Question 3. How do we expect a preacher to establish contact with his audience? A good preacher will often use a story illustrating some problem that the passage under consideration will relate to. Paul simply talks nicely to his audience. And secondly, we get to 17 to 25, called the narratio, the narration of the events related to the central issue. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about forty years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. After this God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one, no, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In these verses, Paul spins things a bit. That is, he only talks about the things that will support his argument. Question 4. In which direction does he do this? What would he have said to spin it in the other direction? What would have been the result? Why does he mention John the Baptist? He only talks about the good things that happened, not the many problems both in the wilderness and in the days of the judges, and then, later, in the days of the prophets. He wants to remind them of the great days of David, and to stress that Jesus was a descendant of David. John seems to have earned a great reputation throughout Judaism, so his testimony to Jesus is important. And third, we're going to read verse 26, which is what they call the propositio, the major proposition to be argued. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Imagine you were in Antioch of Pisidia, more than 500 miles from Jerusalem, a long walk 
or a dangerous journey away. Question 5. What would your likely reaction to this statement be? It might well not have been too much interest. I presume that there would have been little information or interest in Antioch in what happened to Jerusalem. Fourthly, we're going to read verses 27 to 37, the probatio, that is the main arguments for the proposition. Go. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, You will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Question 6. What was Paul's main argument in these verses? Where did he get confirmation of his arguments? Jesus was condemned, though he was not guilty of any crime. His resurrection established that he was the expected Messiah, all of which was a fulfillment of scriptures they will have been thoroughly familiar with. Question 7. What are our main arguments in defense of our faith? Where can we get confirmation from? They should be exactly the same as Paul's. The only difference is that those we may be trying to convince will not have the knowledge of and the confidence in the scriptures that Paul's listeners had. So the story of Jesus told at length and in detail, is now of fundamental importance. Fifthly, we're going to read verses 38 to 41, the exhortatio, as they called it, an exhortation based on the preceding argument. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law. 
of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Question 8. What did Paul want his hearers to do? To believe in Jesus, that is, that he was the Messiah, and therefore the appointed way that sins were to be forgiven and approached to God possible. Thus they would be justified, that is, they would be declared now to be free from all condemnation in the day of judgment. There was a usual mixed response of acceptance and violent rejection. Like the people of Pisidian Antioch, we have to decide. Do we accept or reject what Paul was asking us to do? And that's the end of this study. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.